The pandemic has brought home to all of us the importance of the public services we sometimes take for granted. Not just the NHS, but schools, local councils, the police and prison service have all faced huge challenges keeping the show on the road. And clear leadership has been crucial to this task. Now, more than ever, our public services need great head teachers, chief constables, great prison governors and hospital directors. But what makes for great leadership in the public sector? How do you make sure your organisation is delivering for the public and not squandering hard-earned taxes? How do you handle a crisis or navigate the complex relationship with an ever-changing government? I'm Justin Russell and I work alongside the justice system as Her Majesty's Chief Inspector of Probation. I've spent my life working with and learning from inspirational leaders who have done all of these things and more. In this special series for Bridges to the Future, I'll be speaking to just some of those who have survived and thrived at the top to find out how they did it and what they can teach you. So join me for a lesson in leadership. This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Justin Russell. My guest today joined the civil service in 1985 and over the next 35 years rose up the ranks to become permanent secretary of two different departments before leaving Whitehall in 2020. She's someone who cares passionately about good leadership, which she defines as making it possible for others to do their best work. As chair of the civil service leadership and talent board, she was also responsible for growing the next generation of leaders and for spelling out what excellent civil service leaders should look like. The civil service, she says, needs leaders who are kind, inclusive, rigorous, creative, innovative, empathetic, respectful and self-aware. Since April 2021, she's taken on a new challenge as the Chief Executive of Citizens Advice, one of the UK's biggest voluntary organisations with almost 30,000 staff and volunteers providing essential advice and help to 3 million people a year. Her name is Dame Claire Moriarty. Welcome, Claire. Great to talk to you again. Really good to be with you, Justin. So, Claire, this series is about what great leaders do, how they set a vision, how they engage with their staff, make sure that people are delivering. And that's something you've been thinking and speaking about for many years. But let's start at the beginning with your own career. You studied maths at Oxford and then joined what was then the Department for Health and Social Security in 1985 as a a finance trainee, I think. And you stayed at the Department of Health for the next 20 years with various secondments to the NHS along the way. You worked in the private offices of three secretaries of state, Virginia Bottomley, Stephen Dorrell and Frank Dobson, and on a range of high-profile policy areas, including drugs policy and the creation of the NHS Foundation Trust. What lessons do you think you learned from those first 20 years of your civil service career? I learned a lot of lessons about moving around a lot. So I used to describe myself as the Department of Health's human cannonball. And certainly there was a period during my early career when I was constantly moving to do the next problematic issue that the department had. I remember turning up in a job one day and going to make myself a cup of tea at the tea point and bumping into somebody who I'd worked with previously. And he took one look at me and he became ashen white and his jaw dropped. And he said, if you're here, it must be really bad. And obviously, spending time in the Secretary of State's office, I knew everybody, kind of not just everybody in the department, but pretty much everybody who was doing critical things across the NHS. And it, it felt like a place where there was lots of things going on. 
And you did various policy roles in the Department of Health, and there's a bit of a tradition in Whitehall of permanent secretaries coming from a policy background like yours rather than an operational one. Do you think, on balance, that's a good or a bad thing? It's something I've thought about quite a lot. I think it's really interesting. I don't think it's right that there is such a predominance of a policy background. But the thing that really you have to get at senior levels is politics. The thing that we're all a bit shy about saying is that the business of government is politics and policy is one of the tools through which that happens and operational delivery is another of the tools and all sorts of the functional professions are also the tools through which that happens. As you get more senior, you absolutely have to engage with politics in a civil service way. So it has to be really clear. Civil servants don't do the politics themselves, but you absolutely have to understand that. And I think probably if you come in through a policy route and do policy roles, you get exposed to politics at an earlier level and people get more comfortable with it. But in reality, people in very senior operational roles absolutely have to engage with politics. People in very senior corporate services role have to engage with politics. But often people will be on a on a steeper and later learning curve. And I think that institutionally, the civil service tends to look at people in terms of their last job and not really think about what they might have learnt along the way in a more interesting and kind of varied set of jobs. In 2005, you moved on promotion to a different department, the Department for Constitutional Affairs, now called the Ministry of Justice, to become a director for constitution policy. And you've said that it was only really at this point that you started to focus on leadership and what your role as a leader was about. Why was that the point at which you started to focus on leadership? So it was absolutely fascinating because I went from an environment where I was a massive subject matter expert. As I was saying, you know, I knew everybody and I had been immersed in what the department had been doing over a 20-year period. And I went to a department where I had no background at all. And the constitution is a really, you know, it's a set of very technical issues. And the constitution directorate had this amazing breadth. So I found myself responsible for freedom of information, data protection, human rights, the constitutional settlement, devolution, European and international affairs, just this great breadth of things. And I didn't know anything about them. And so I suddenly found that all the things I was used to spending my time on, they weren't there for me anymore. I couldn't hope to be somebody who knew all of the detail. I remember quite early on going to a meeting with the Lord Chancellor, who was then Charlie Faulkner, and someone around the table said, And who was the Lord Chancellor in 1346? And somebody else was able to answer the question. And it was that sense that, you know, it is is very deep. It's deep in history. It's very much kind of tied up with kind of lots of the history of law. And so when I arrived, and for quite a period after I'd arrived, I just couldn't spend my time doing the things I was used to doing. And so I was confronted with finding myself in this very senior role with 150 people in my directorate thinking, I've got no, quote, real work to do. What on earth am I going to spend my time on? And I think I know that you've said at some points that you you think there are some leaders who are people-focused and some who are task-focused, and you sound very much like someone who's a people-focused person. How how do you get the balance right between people and task? Is it possible to go too much towards one way or the other if you're a, a leader? I think it's always possible to go too much to one end or the other. I mean, we all have preferences and the temptation is to to follow our preferences you know, too far one way. 
my experience of the civil service is that the the emphasis on on the kind of a very analytical approach and the emphasis rightly the emphasis on delivering and making things happen means that there is a general institutional tendency towards being quite task focused so you can go a long way you can push a long way to being towards being people focused and you're still really only redressing the balance you know in other environments you can get organizations that are tip too far the other way and don't have enough of that grit that says but hang on a minute let's make sure we get the task done but on the whole in the civil service the waiting is the other way and, and I found personally, because my my academic training is as a mathematician, and my kind of Myers Briggs preference is people, that actually those two things they sort of fight a bit in my head. I know, generally speaking, once I settled into it, I found that they they kind of broadly speaking kept themselves in balance. Mm. So going back to your career, after, after a brief, brief stint back at the Department of Health and the NHS, you, you moved again on promotion to become Director General in the Department for Transport in 2009, eventually becoming Director General for Rail in 2013. So that was another change of policy area, another different culture, working with the rail industry and with rail policy experts. I know talking to you previously, you said it was a very male world, was that something you were conscious of? Has, has gender made a, a difference to your career? I think you can't be in rail or you couldn't be in rail then, certainly, and not notice gender at the most senior level. If I walked into a room of chief executives, then there would be maybe one, maybe two other women. You would have a group of 50 people and you'd have maybe one or two other women. It was very, very striking. And partly it was striking because actually the environments I'd been in previously were not nearly as male dominated. So I think over my career, certainly I, mean, I used to describe myself as part of the 20% generation. So I joined as a fast streamer in the mid 80s and women made up about 20% of the fast stream. And I became a grade five, as it was in old money, a deputy director in the mid 90s. And women were about 20% of deputy directors. And by the time I got to be a permanent secretary, women were about 20% of permanent secretaries. And the good news is that actually, you know, following through, the percentages have hugely improved. And so you know, I think the fast stream tips over 50% some time ago. And the senior civil service, certainly the deputy director level was getting, I think we were up at 47, 48% in, in DEFRA. So a lot of points during my career, I felt that I was in quite a, a minority. In my early years, I wouldn't say there was a strong sense. I think the NHS actually was less enlightened, shall we say, than the civil service. I think as many people find, it's it's often less about gender than the things that come with gender, like children and caring responsibilities. And when I worked part-time, I had children after the time I spent in the Secretary of State's office. So I was a very experienced and senior deputy director at that point. But then I had a sabbatical, had some maternity leave, came back into the department after a bit and was treated as a very a kind of insignificant and junior member of the system because I didn't work full time. And that was much more striking than gender as such. I think I came back to being very interested in the impact of attitudes to gender later on because it's a much more subtle 
thing about culture and expectations and the invisible norm, which is still a broadly male invisible norm, as well as being, you know, a white middle class invisible norm. And the little things that meant that it was just that bit harder to fit into the norm and therefore be seen as, quote, the right type of person. Yeah. I mean, as you say, there, there does seem to be quite significant progress on, on gender in the civil service and the senior civil service, perhaps less progress in relation to some other characteristics. I mean, race is an obvious area where there's still a pretty small proportion of the senior civil services are from a, an ethnic minority background, still struggling to achieve diversity around disability. And I know diversity and inclusion is something you've, you've felt very passionately about and that people should feel comfortable bringing their whole selves to work. What else could the civil service be doing or employers more generally to make themselves welcoming, inclusive and diverse places, do you think? So I think the diversity progress, exactly as you say, I think we'd made a lot of progress on women to the point where, although I think there were still issues to address, it did seem to me that really we were in a pretty shocking position still in terms of race and disability at senior levels. And those were the places where we really needed to to focus. And it is, I mean, it does come back to the constant discussion about both diversity and inclusion. And when I first went to DEFRA, I realised relatively quickly that we did have quite an issue with race. I sat down and talked to the, the Ethnic Minority Network and they talked about people you know, reaching a glass ceiling, not just at the SCS level, which is quite common in the civil service, but actually at grades six and seven, and people were leaving the department because they felt that this was a place that they couldn't progress. And I started to find all sorts of places where you'd find people from minority ethnic backgrounds who were overqualified academically for the roles that they were in because they weren't finding opportunities to progress. Often, they were then making an amazing contribution in communities, which kind of underlined the fact that we were just not giving people the opportunity opportunity to use their talents. And it became something that I was constantly trying to see if we could understand what was happening and find ways of combating. Because it's it comes down to the kind of the twin horrors of unconscious bias and the deficit model. So unconscious bias is by its nature really, really deeply rooted and it creates you know, a deeply unlevel playing field. So there were all sorts of you know very good and sensible things that were done by government departments, certainly to try and combat unconscious bias. And people would go on training courses and they would come back saying, you know, it's okay, I've cracked unconscious bias now, but it would still come out. One of the things that really interested me was the move that was made to name blind recruitment. And there's research going back certainly to the 1970s, looking at entry to medical school, they took a set of applications and they put, you know, Asian sounding names on some of them and and Caucasian sounding names on some of them. And, and they were exactly the same, you know, exam results and exactly the same personal statements. And they got in disproportionately if they had Caucasian names. So there are certain points where name blind recruitment can certainly help. The problem was that it became seen as a general solution. And actually, if you have been discriminated at you know, even in a kind of micro way at every single stage of your educational and career history, then by the time you get to looking at more senior roles, then it's not just that your name looks different, but actually your entire experience is different. The way you express yourself is different. You can't just then take people's names away and then assume that that will give them a level 
experience. And one of the things that I became quite passionate about was really looking in the eye the fact that we were starting from an unlevel playing field and we needed to do more than just try and make a particular interaction in the moment equal. We did have to try and go back. And it's the equality versus equity argument that says we need to look at how we take account of all the ways in which people have been disadvantaged along the way. And it's difficult to do, and it's very difficult to do in an organisation, institution like the civil service, which provides itself on you know, fair and open competition and doing things on merit, because it's, you have to question the whole concept of what is merit. Merit is not just merit in the moment, but merit is influenced by all of the context that people have been through. And you get the same thing on the inclusion side where you know the deficit model again you know an unconscious process says let's try and encourage people who might not start out looking the same as our expected norm to be more like the norm so we do we you know we carry a norm of what good looks like and then you know i saw all sorts of procedures put in place and indeed you know was part of them supported them tried to make them work to help people who were not that norm to fit more closely to it in order for them to progress and we have to if we really really want to do something about both diversity and inclusion we've got to go a step back and question what we mean by good and merit and you know be more open to the fact that somebody might be very brilliant, but brilliant in a way that we find very, very challenging or really quite irritating, or just it just doesn't land with how we're used to seeing things, because otherwise we're applying a frame that excludes lots and lots of you know talent and, and opportunity before people even get to put their cards on the table. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned DAFRA. In 2015, you became Permanent Secretary at the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, where, in your words, they gave me the keys to the bus and, and let me drive it. And you've given some examples there about things that you were passionate about in relation to diversity and inclusion. But how much freedom did you feel you had to drive the bus where you wanted to take it in, in other areas? I think in terms of how the organisation feels, you do get a great deal of freedom as a permanent secretary. Obviously, you know, you don't get to set the policy around environment, food and rural affairs. That is properly for ministers to do. But there are so many aspects to how a government department operates, which are you know, largely the preserve of the, the permanent secretary. And what I found was I'd, from the sort of mid-2000s, when I first went to the Ministry of Justice, I'd become really interested in what I could do to change not just what I was doing in my small space, but have an influence over how we were doing things more generally. And I'd, you know, in repeated jobs, tried to kind of pop the cork from underneath. You know, as a director, trying to change the way that the entire department operated, I could have a bit of influence, I could nudge a bit, but you know, it wasn't for me to make that change. And even as a director general, sitting around the executive committee table, you know, part of the top leadership of the department, you know, I could make the case for what I thought was a good way of doing things, but I couldn't, you know, I didn't have the ability to make that happen. And the keys of the bus thing was really being able to say, I think this is a good way to lead this organisation and by putting more emphasis on the connections that that we made between people and encouraging people to, you know, talk to other people and really kind of creating a lot of emphasis on empathy and respect to create an environment where, you know, things just happened differently 
And that was something which was, you know, far off the radar of ministers. They were obviously interested in how the department felt and they were interested in what the department produced. But actually that that question of what you can do and how as a permanent secretary, I was able to create and project a culture which caused things to happen differently. There was a huge degree of freedom to do that. Hmm. I mean, obviously, one of the areas where there is less freedom is is around the big strategic political priorities for the department. And you mentioned politics being a big part of the world for all senior civil servants and political priorities are inevitably set by ministers and that requires civil service leaders sometimes to deliver policies they may not necessarily agree with has that been a challenge for you in your career or for the people that you lead i think it's one of the you know it's one of the central tenets of the civil service and the civil service code has two apparently two statements in it which can be seen as intention one says you must give your best advice to ministers and the other one says and you must implement whatever ministers decide to do and i think the ability to stay with the constraints of operating in a political environment as a non-political civil servant are sort of tied up with that and for some people that creates an impossible tension for some people once they've given their advice, they are so invested in it that they just can't accept a world where you then say, but you've decided to do something different and I need to implement it. For those of us who stayed, it was almost, you know, by definition, it was because we could live with that. And over 35 years, I've been involved in all sorts of things, some of which is there's a when you don't understand things superficially, they I would think, well, I don't really want to be involved in that. But actually, when I got into it, I discovered there was more to it than met the eye. Sometimes there were things which I, if I had not necessarily advised should happen, and I didn't, from a personal point of view, I didn't necessarily agree with. But that's not the point, because as a civil servant, your job is to implement. And one of the things that I was always focused on is, it's not for us to, this is us for advice, but ultimately to accept the the political judgment on the what, but there are always choices to be made about how and thinking about the people who are involved in implementing things and particularly the people who are on the receiving end of government policies and services. If you always approach it from the point of view of what is these people's experience and what can we do that improves their experience, then that provides something that is is a strong focus and something that people can can rally round and it takes the pressure off a constant debate about do I or don't I agree with a particular policy. I mean, obviously, the big political issue which dominated your last five years in the civil service and in practice, both of your permanent secretary jobs was Brexit and the debate about Brexit and how that would be taken forward. You, you joined DEFRA a year before the Brexit referendum. Can you remember the day after the referendum result in Whitehall and, and how it felt? How did you guide your staff through that? I can very, very vividly remember the day after the, the referendum because I had, like many other people, no doubt, stayed up all night watching the referendum and you know, and realising that this was going to be a huge change for DEFRA. And I remember about six o'clock in the morning, sticking myself under the shower and thinking, right, okay, well, I'm going to, go to need to go to the office and I'm going to need to say something to people and what is it that I'm going to need to say? And it just, it, it came to me, there were these four things that I needed to say. The first was, this is change on a scale that we've never seen before. 
And so it turned out to be. The second was everybody craves certainty, but certainty is not going to be coming anytime soon, which also turned out to be absolutely true and more true than we could possibly have believed at the time. The third one was it's okay to feel what you feel. And the fourth one was you know, we need to put our arms around our non-UK EU citizen colleagues for whom some of the emotions that we are feeling will be you know, massively amplified. And we did in, within the DEFRA group. We had many, many people from different EU countries. And when you know later I went into work and we did indeed do a sort of very big town hall and then a, a telephone session as well. And I basically said those four things. And the third one was particularly important to me. And it turned out as, as the kind of ripples came back to me, it's particularly important to other people because the instinctive tendency was to say, we need to tell people to be professional. And I just thought we don't actually need to tell people to be professional. Civil servants are naturally professional. What we actually need them The risk is that people will be so professional that they will kind of bottle up their emotions, and you know, and it's perfectly legitimate for people to have emotions. To people, you're not expected as a civil servant not to care about things. You just have to know how to manage the difference between what you feel as an individual and what you do when you come to work, and actually telling people, you know, giving people permission to experience that just, you know, whatever they felt, whether they felt it was fantastic, or whether they felt it was terrible, to go through that emotional process and not to feel that it was something that they should be denying themselves was a really important message because it was, you know, it was huge for DEFRA. Everything we did pretty much was tied up with Europe. I think legislation to do with DEFRA's areas accounted for a quarter of all legislation ever passed by the EU at the point when we voted to leave. So there was a massive amount of unpicking. There was actually quite a lot of this. this, It's always been the area where there's been the most opportunity because things like the common agricultural policy and the common fisheries policy are quite problematic. And so people in DEFRA very quickly flipped into thinking about how would we want to support ministers in changing the system for the better to be more focused on the environment. So it was a very interesting arc, but that first day was extraordinarily intense. Well, it was, and I can vividly remember that day as well, and the, and the, just the shock really in the department about the result. And one of the interesting debates, I suppose, is is the shock in Whitehall at the result, a reflection of the fact that Whitehall and the political class had, had lost touch with the rest of the country and hadn't realised how the rest of the country maybe felt about this issue. I think that's right. I think it's quite interesting. I've you know I've read quite a bit about this, and and my recollection is we didn't really see it coming. Even though I think the politicians, some of the politicians who were out canvassing, did see it coming, but there was a bit of a sense that it was you know I mean particularly having been through the Scottish referendum when we'd been through the same sort of cycle of it looking you know very very difficult and very gloomy, and then coming out with a positive result at the end. And I think there was a collective belief that it would probably be okay. And I think, as you say, not enough understanding that we only all collectively got afterwards of what it really felt like in parts of the country that really felt they'd been quite left behind. I mean, when we look back, I remember some of the reporting there was on you know, farmers in Wales and the, the received wisdom was, well, farmers receive lots of money from the EU, so obviously they're going to vote to stay in the EU. And actually for farmers, you know, getting subsidies was 
you know, it was better than not getting subsidies, but it wasn't what they wanted in terms of how they felt about being farmers. And so there was a whole, you know, and the same was true in you know big swathes of you know the northeast of England, all sorts of places where people felt that the EU might have been providing a lot of funding, but it was only providing funding because the shape of society had been deeply fractured a long time ago. Yeah. So the referendum happened and then you as a department and government in general had to prepare for Brexit, but without really knowing what form Brexit would take and you were needing to prepare for a whole different range of scenarios, including obviously the potential for a no-deal Brexit. How, How difficult was it to lead people through that uncertainty, which continued right through to the last moment really, didn't it? It did. And I learned an absolutely massive amount along the way. From very early on, uncertainty was the central theme because there was quite a long period when nobody knew what was happening at all. And quite, you know, as far as we could see, some quite significant swathes of Whitehall were just being paralysed by it. And I personally, I reached for a lot of metaphors. So I had a whole lot of metaphors, which I shared with the department. There was one about Lego bricks, which was, we don't know at the end of the day, whether we're going to be asked to build a yellow submarine or a pink fairy castle. But if we can make lots of Lego bricks, then we'll be able, we'll be better placed to be able to build whatever people may want. So let's focus on the, you know, the granular component parts. We know that we're going to need to do lots of things about tariffs. We know that we're going to have to do lots of things about trade. So what can we do now that gets us better? prepared. And that I found was really helpful. So a lot of trying to help people balance acknowledgement of uncertainty. So it was important not to pretend that the uncertainty wasn't there, but almost we learned to ration the way that we engage with it. So we would from time to time look at what I used to call the black spitting ball of fury, which was the impossible, the impossibility of finding a way through the political process. And we would talk about it and talk about what it meant for us and what it meant for our people. But then we would sort of go, okay, and now we're going to put that back in its box and we're going to concentrate on something that we can actually do that's in front of us. The deal and no deal was very, that was very difficult because we were asking people to hold two contradictory things in their heads and then get on and plan and actually take action. And there came a point where I could see that people knew what they needed to do to be prepared for a possible no deal, but just felt nervous about taking the decisions. And the ultimate DEFRA metaphor was called the virtual reality headset. And so we ceremonially put a virtual reality headset on the entire department and said, within the virtual reality headset, we are definitely leaving the EU on the 29th of March, 2019, as it was at the time. And we're just going to spend the next three months preparing as if we were absolutely confident that was going to happen and we were going to take sensible decisions, but within that frame. And then in three months' time, which was December of 2018, we're going to lift up the virtual reality headset and have a look around. And hopefully, it will all be sorted by then and we can just get on and prepare for deal. But if it's not, then we can put it back on and keep preparing. And we actually, as it turned out, we had to do that. We were still doing it when I left DEFRA. But that that sense of creating, even if it was artificial certainty for people so that they could function and get on and do things, was both practically and psychologically, I think, the single most important thing that, that we did that made us able to function as a department. Yeah, I mean, it was a period I remember very well, and it was a very strange period, pressing buttons to take action to spend money on a scenario that everyone hoped wouldn't happen, felt like an odd thing to do, and people were looking for 
reassurance from their leaders that, that it was okay to do that. And I think that was a very helpful way of thinking about it, really. And then moving forward to April 2019, as you say, one of the deadlines had been, well, maybe the second deadline had been passed around uh, Brexit without it happening. And at that point, you moved over to be permanent secretary for the department for exiting the EU. Was it a wrench to leave DEFRA? It was a wrench. I really, really loved leading DEFRA. It's a department of such variety and interest. And in creating a single department for environment and food, the UK has internalised a lot of tensions, which in many countries you'd have one department facing farming and one department facing the environment. So there's a lot of inherent tension, but it does mean that you have to tackle issues about the relationship between farming and environment. And it was just, it was a great place to be. And all the things that we discovered that we did once we got into Brexit that no one had needed to worry about, and we then had to take ownership of and and fix ourselves. It was, you know, from my point of view, it was a dream job. Hmm. And then within a year of you taking over this new role at DEXEU, you were having to shut that department down after the 2019 election. That must have been quite traumatic, really, for for you and your staff. Talk talk me through what that felt like. It was very traumatic. So I went to DEXEU on, I started there on the 1st of April, which should have been the first working day outside the EU. And then, as you say, there was there was an extension. But, but we bunny hopped from uncertainty to uncertainty, essentially, all the time that I was there. So we had the cross-party talks and then we had, we had the hiatus about whether Theresa May was going to try and get the withdrawal agreement bill passed. And then she announced that she was standing down and we had the leadership election and then we had the new prime minister. And then, you know, very quickly after that, we had the massive crescendo of of intensity around the parliamentary processes and then we ran into an election. And so I spent every two weeks, I was doing stand-ups around Dexu, fortunately, small number of people, so it was quite easy to do. And every two weeks I'd be going, well, we don't know what's happening. It's very uncertain. Hopefully in two weeks we'll know a bit more. In the meantime, you know, everyone really appreciates what you're doing. Please keep doing it. You know, it's massively valuable. And then we had the general election. And, you know, within days, so the general election was a Thursday, and then at the weekend newspapers were saying Dexy's going to close without at that point any decision having been made. And just before, so I think on the 16th of December, which was the Monday after the election, when all of this speculation had landed, and I had to decide whether to try and push for a clear decision and an announcement. We had the choice of either announcing the week before Christmas that the department was going to be closed or not announcing the week before Christmas and having three weekends worth of speculation while people are on holiday. So in the end, we forced the issue and made an announcement, which I'm proud to say happened two whole minutes before it was briefed out and people, so people did hear it from me and Mark Sedwell just before they found it on on their phones. At the end of this process, you you were one of the people that were left without a role. So I I guess that forced on you a decision about, well, do I stick with the civil service or do I do something else? And in the end, you decided to do something else. Do Do you ever regret that decision? Actually, I was the only person who was left entirely without a job and I was made redundant. So that choice was sort of, at that point, it wasn't a choice that was uh, that was immediately mine to make. But I had for some time been thinking that actually I was quite interested to see what all, having 
become so interested in leadership and creating thriving and flourishing environments for people, what would it be like to take that experience and apply it somewhere else? Because all of my experience, apart from spells in the NHS, had been in central government. And I was quite keen once I I had a little time to rest and recuperate, which of course was during the pandemic. So it's quite an odd time. I was quite keen to see what it might feel like to apply everything I'd learned and take it into another environment. So just one final question, Claire, looking back over that very distinguished career in the civil service and all the thinking that you did about leadership in the civil service and and about your current role as well. I mean, if it was possible to boil it all down, what what do you think are the essential attributes of a a good leader? In a sense, I go back to where you started right at the beginning about creating direction, choosing the right people, and then making sure that the things that need to be done get done. And then that kind of, you know, the the critical element in the middle, which is around integrity. And I go back to that. When I started at Ministry of Justice, this, this time when I really got interested in and focused on leadership. The the civil service had just developed a leadership model as it did from time to time. And I was asked to sort of bring together some people within the then Department for Constitutional Affairs and help look at it. And whichever way I came at it, fundamentally, you know, those are the things, that's the triangle or the, 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 the triangle with this important heart of things that you just have to keep coming back to. It is really important that as a leader, you show people where they're going and you show them more than anyone individually can see. Attending to people, getting the right people, growing people, helping them to see what they can do that they didn't otherwise necessarily know because they hadn't stretched themselves into that space yet. But actually, when they come to do it, they can do and then never losing the focus on, you know, who are we here for? What are we trying to do? How do we make sure that we're holding ourselves suitably to account? The bit in the middle is the bit that sort of constantly fascinates me. What is it that makes people want to follow leaders? And you get to the really interesting debate about authenticity and the fact that, you know, we all have really, really well-developed bullshit detectors. So if somebody says what they know they should be saying but they don't really mean it. We're all really good at telling that. And so creating, you know, attending to the three sides of the triangle while also maintaining that spirit of what it means to be a leader and to be offering things to people. I think that's where I come back to. I think that's a great note to finish on, Claire. Thank you ever so much for sharing your thoughts and telling us about your career. Best of luck with your new role. Look forward to speaking to you again at some point. Thank you very much indeed. It's been great talking to you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org/approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.